Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. It is September 24th, 2020. Here we are in the COVID-19 era. Uh, joining you again uh, is my good uh, compliment, so to speak, uh, Bill Padilla. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Thanks again. Absolutely. Always great to have Bill on. And we are going to be discussing today uh, Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. And some listeners might be curious, Lehman Brothers in bankruptcy in 2020 in connection with the uh, collapse of 2008 and 2009. Yes, here we are 11 years later, and all of the legal consequences are being unpacked as we speak. And bankruptcy court is supposed to be a place where debts are clarified and the respective rights of true creditors to collect are analyzed and established by motion, by analysis, by the filing of proofs of claim and the submission of other legal documents into the bankruptcy proceeding. And judges are supposed to sift through that. The trustees are supposed to sift through that and make fundamental decisions about the rights of the respective parties. Now, while the rights of the debtor, here the debtor is Lehman Brothers in a Chapter 11, and what's interesting about this particular piece, and of course, Bill will be going into this today in some detail, is that here you have NationStar submitting a proof of claim, and it looks like When you look at the proof of claim, it's very much the type of proof of claim they would submit if they were demanding to collect from a borrower in bankruptcy. We're all familiar, I think listeners to this show are, with borrowers in bankruptcy. And most of us are on the side of the borrowers. There are some listeners I know who are on the side of the institutional players I've never taken the opportunity to welcome them, but I will say welcome to the show today. (laughs) You institutional players, who's ever listening today, uh, I hope you find value in what we discuss. And I will say in connection with that, as I often say, and there are disclaimers and disclosures both at the beginning and the end of the show, so whether I mention it or not, the following should be taken. And that is, this show is not regarding legal advice. This show is not intended to solicit from any individual or otherwise 
Legal Services. This show is a thought-provoking, topic-oriented, I think safe haven for borrowers personally, but that's just a parenthetical thought. And it's meant to introduce ideas or expand on ideas or give further information that if one looks to follow up on that information, whether it's either in support of or against borrowers, one should certainly consult with a legal advisor and then you will get further legal takes on what we discussed today, which again is not legal advice, simply uh, ruminations from some interested people, Bill and I, on the topic of the day and the foreclosure and the mortgage foreclosure and the unlawful detainer, all these multiple arenas. Uh, So, Bill, why don't you just uh, come right in on this latest layman angle? (laughs) All right. I'd be glad to. uh, And, again, I I reiterate the um, disclaimer there because – uh, you know, I've I've been digging into this Lehman thing on and off over the years, obviously, but um, I have a number of cases at the moment where I'm really kind of doing a more uh, deep dive into this uh, topic and issue, and it's uh, it's like fishing in a cesspool. So, um, what I'm going to bring up and talk about is uh, some of these tidbits, facts, findings, clues, things of that nature, where um, I'm still formulating my opinions on a lot of the evidence and things as I'm coming across this stuff in, in the uh, the old fish net, uh, sort of like, you know, Forrest Gump when they out there on the jenny and they, you know, looking for uh, fishing for shrimp, you know, they pull up a, a crab net that has, you know, a license plate and a toilet seat and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm trudging up a lot of garbage here, but um, I'm starting to actually see some, some nice jumbo shrimp, if, uh, if that's a good metaphor. So um, one of the things that I talked about with you on the, on the past shows is that, look, when this bankruptcy uh, hit in 2009, <clears throat> or 2008 really, and the claims started flooding in, the trustees on, on hundreds of these trusts, um, <clears throat> over uh, you know, 250-plus trusts, uh, had filed these initial claims uh, in September of 2009 um, before they really had any idea. They knew that, that they were trying to protect themselves. They didn't really have a full understanding of um, all the specifics of how toxic and all this stuff was, but they knew that they had um, some semblance of recourse, so to speak, to to make these claims. And they sought um, from the court permission to have auditing firms, third parties, come in and do all the auditing, as we discussed on the past shows. So what's interesting here is that this bankruptcy has, has continued on for all these years. And um, and in one of the cases, uh, just last Friday, uh, I was checking the docket, and right across the wire on the very same day comes this proof of claim that – uh, you mentioned from Nation Star, and what was interesting about that proof of claim is that it's one of the very first times that I've actually seen uh, Nation Star or a party file a claim in a bankruptcy where they're declaring a default uh, for lack of payment on the mortgage note on a homeowner's mortgage note, 
But they weren't declaring the default on the homeowner themselves. They were saying that the the, the debtor, the party in default, uh, was Lehman Brothers. Uh, and so, in this particular scenario, they provide a specific note and their and, and a mortgage, and they're moving for a relief from the bankruptcy stay. So they're getting seeking permission from the bankruptcy to proceed and foreclose against this particular homeowner. And they're and again, they're declaring the default on the uh, on the debtor Lehman, but uh, they also are seeking uh, in that relief. They're noticing the court that they are intending to name Lehman as a nominal defendant in the foreclosure action. Okay, so now that is something that in all these years with all these thousands of loans being tied up in these repurchase demands, not only in Lehman, but, you know, pick one, all the investor suits, the Countrywide suits, the Washington Mutual, Inc., bondholder suits uh, that were tied up for years in litigation on these repurchase demands. It's the first time that they said, and out and sought permission from the court that we wanted we have to name Lehman as a nominal defendant. So it, it made me go back and take another you know look, and I've been looking at this same language for years. If you look at a promissory note, and then most of them are pretty much the same, but if you look, a lot of them have like in paragraph eight of uh, the promissory notes. <clears throat> it has very specific language in there that you, that you posted for the show tonight. That says, quote unquote, the note holder may enforce its rights under this note against each person individually or against all of us together. This means that any one of us may be required to pay all the amounts owed under this note. So clearly, what you have here is um, they're making a claim against the debtor for a default as an obligor on this homeowner's note. So <clears throat> as I started looking at this, um, a couple of things kind of jumped out at me, uh, and, and this may seem relatively uh, simple to to understand, um, but it's, it always amazes me, having done this for as many years as I have, that it, on, on any given day I can read a document, and sometimes it just suddenly has a different meaning, or it looks different, or the context of what I'm seeing is different based on new information or whatnot. So... Um, what kind of dawned on me is, okay, one of the reasons why, um, or there's many reasons why we have all these putback demands um, on these loans, it's clearly they're seeking redress and recourse through, and, and to get their money back and recourse on the, on the buying of these uh, mortgages and notes for various reasons, whether they're uh, reps and warranties violations, uh, they didn't even get the goods. You know, there's all kinds of there's just hundreds of reasons why uh, they're seeking um, their their recourse in the bankruptcy and these repurchase demands. But if you look at the simple language of these note endorsements, and this plays into um, people who are well aware of the Tada endorsements, right? So throughout the years, I mean, we all know that these endorsements are slapped on these notes in preparation for litigation that they weren't on on the so-called original notes to begin with. We have various copies being uh, produced in bankruptcy and then foreclosure proceedings, and there's just a, an overwhelming abundance of evidence to to show that uh, these notes were not being endorsed, okay? And, and it's pretty simple to understand. If you have a blank endorsement, it says paid to the order of without recourse, all right? So I started, you know, 
you know, putting two and two together here, look, if you have billions of dollars in repurchase demands, if these investors and trustees are going back into the bankruptcy, for example, in Lehman and saying, we're, we're suing you for recourse to buy these back, I have not seen any of the bankruptcy parties or the parties in the uh, put-back demand disputes. Even, for example, Washington Mutual, when the FDIC and Chase, they're all fighting over who had the liabilities on these repurchase demands, and they were fighting about that for years. Where was the defense, or why wasn't the defense issued you know, immediately to say, well, wait a minute here, you've got a note endorsed in blank without recourse. You're, you're out of luck. You knew what you were buying, and you bought it without recourse. End of story. The reason being, I believe, is that clearly the notes were never endorsed. Uh, because that defense would have been applied. So they were able to proceed in these bankruptcies and continue to file these claims and fight it out through all these years. While in the meantime, they were and have been and so uh, proceeding, and I'm sure many listeners out there, if you've been foreclosed and you're listening and you had a, some Lehman subsidiary or Lehman loan that was in a trust, they probably marched into a judicial setting in Florida or another state or even not just saying that uh, they were the holder of the note, endorsed in blank, without recourse. Well, that really is problematic in my view, and it's very inconsistent, because if that note was in the bankruptcy proceeding, undisclosed and unannounced, or whatever you want to call it, to uh, the foreclosure setting, that note was likely not endorsed, because they, again, uh, were suing for that, that recourse. So we know, for example, and, and it's not just Lehman, but we've talked about it before, Washington Mutual, they admitted to the investors they weren't going to endorse the notes and they were going to retain possession of those notes. Uh, look at the Kemp v. Countrywide infamous case early on where the Countrywide uh, uh, witness admitted that as a policy and procedure, Countrywide was never endorsed the notes and delivered to the trust from 2006 to 2009 specifically. So those admissions, based on all the other evidence that the servicer screenshots are showing that uh, they endorsed the notes just prior to litigation or the notes were destroyed, all of that, clearly shows that if you have these claims, again, they they obviously had recourse, and it's pro it, it implies very strongly that uh, the note endorsement was not on that note in the bankruptcy, and those note endorsements are being placed upon the notes after, for example, the WAMU receivership. So uh, another case in point, or another example, if if a, if a repurchase demand was made by Deutsche Bank in the Washington Mutual bankruptcy demanding repurchase and the defenses were never raised that those notes that you bought it without recourse, uh, trustee, then it clearly shows that those endorsements were very likely placed on those notes after the receivership with the, with the WAMU officer signatures. Okay, that's, and that's just one piece of all the other evidence to support that, that theory. So what I want to ask you, I guess, Charles, is, you know, people have always, one of the things that have bothered homeowners for years is that, look, when there's these settlements, now, in the Lehman bankruptcy, what's interesting is that all of these claims, even though there was a settlement reached and they ultimately paid 
roughly $2.4 billion on the, on the claims, even though it resulted in settlement, the court still had to approve of, of those figures. And there was actually a trial that led to the final order in 2018 where the court determined at the end of trial that the claim was allowed. So for whatever the trustees said at the beginning in their proofs of claim that, that the loans were defective, they were entitled to be repurchased based on the violations of the sale agreements and so on and so forth, the court deemed that the claims, they, those were allowable claims. And so therefore, the, the percentage in the Lehman uh, bankruptcy was 11.2% uh, on the overall debt of the purchase price of the loans. So. What people want to know is, do I have a right to offset? Did that need to be disclosed? If I had a million-dollar loan and I find out that $112,000 was paid off on that debt, um, am I not, uh, by a, by a third-party obligor who uh, took over my note, um, am I entitled to know that? Is it entitled to be disclosed? Your thoughts on that, Charles? Well, I think... <clears throat> Neil has laid out, and I believe he's laid out on his blog, the way a securitized loan agreement would look if it were properly constructed to take account of the fact that only one party was was supposed to be obligated. I mean, how can you have all these multiple parties obligated on the same debt? It's not like this is a judgment in a lawsuit situation, and even a judgment in a lawsuit where you're collecting hypothetically jointly and severally, you can't collect more than the final judgment amount. There will be a single judgment amount. And yes, you may get so much from a certain <laughs> defendant party or another defendant party. You add it all up, you get your total money. The securitized uh, the mortgage securitization field arena right now does involve multiple collections on the same debt, even up to including multiples of what the original debt was, so that the clear legal principle that you should not be able to essentially profiteer on a single debt has been obliterated with what I've often called the contrived complexity of the, of the entire securitization arena as it was constructed and as it then imploded in ultimately 2008 and 9. And yes, here we are 12 years later, still trying to unwind the damage, still trying to fully dissect and essentially troubleshoot and curate the very damaging uh, process that the whole securitization fraud, which generally and globally it is, that's not a legal term, by the way, as I'm using the term for the purposes of this show. Yes, the great fraud that has been perpetrated, uh, we're still dealing with it. And yes, under the Uniform Commercial Code, 
Neil often references and has recently in terms of this whole issue, you can only collect once on the debt and for the amount owed. You can't just contrive multiple parties that all of a sudden are obligated on the debt. And I must mention at this juncture the institutional bias angle. I mean, if this were dealing with any other product, you know, some kind of widget out there, some kind of product that people use in their daily routines or to cook or something else, and let's say there's invoicing and there's inventory and there's a failure to, to deliver, there's a contract issue, if we were dealing with any other product, it certainly would be very implausible that a judge would entertain multiple parties all showing up demanding to collect on the debt. Whereas here, that's a routine feature, and it's one of the it's one of the most troubling aspects to the mortgage foreclosure fiasco. And yes, I'd love to give you kind of a quick and dirty answer. Uh, unfortunately, because of the contrived complexity and because of the way judicial rulings have still failed to align the law properly in this arena, uh, the short answer is yes, you could have multiple parties where there are demands of some of them to pay on the debt, some of them are institutional, and the borrower is sitting back and still held an obligation. And even if they pay and settle, hypothetically, even if they settle on the debt, uh, under the securitized circus that this is uh, sort of exemplifying, uh, the the note uh, holder, so-called, could still go after a Lehman Brothers or another so-called originator of the mortgage note if that party goes into bankruptcy, and of course, many uh, servicers, many institutional players have gone into bankruptcy. Well, actually, actually, Charles, that brings up a great point I want to make is that in this bankruptcy, the trustees, especially Wells Fargo, uh, they were accused by Lehman. Lehman and Brothers said, "Look, you can, you haven't provided any of the transfer agreements." Uh, of ever getting these loans from the originators. So there were so many brokers and lenders and correspondents out there, and they said, after discovery and compelling and everything else, that they did not have the goods and they refused to produce. And so, therefore, you have this huge disconnect in proving that the loans ever even made it out of the chute after the so-called origination to the next party in chain. But I think what's really also important to understand here is that um, – and, and this will help people understand what's going on with these debt buys. So you're constantly seeing these newfangled trusts popping up. U.S. Bank is trustee of this, that, and the other thing. Throughout the years, what's going on in this bankruptcy, and, and again, uh, I want to also point out that when this order was issued in 2018 and that the claims were allowed, uh, it sounds to me as though the claims revert back to the, the moment they filed in 2009. And the trust said, you know, we didn't, you're going to buy these things back. So what you have here is for years the trust going out and getting judgments and foreclosing uh, without disclosing these bankruptcy proceedings and these putback demands. Um, but in the midst of the bankruptcy, you've got all this 
selling and assigning of claims between parties, okay? So it's not the selling and assigning of the mortgages and notes. It's that they're trading and moving and, and, and moving the claims around and taking over. All of this is behind the curtain and the shroud of secrecy and none of it's being disclosed that they're, that they're buying and trading and selling rights to these claims, all right? Now, the, and how is MERS weaponized in all of this? Uh, disgusting stuff is well. Look, clearly, it, you know when the when the trustees filed the claims, you got poop in, and what comes out on the other end, it's poop as well. You can't suddenly, uh, if you made these claims that all these violations occurred, that you know the the files were collateral files were defective, and all the violations and stuff, and then and then you try to scrub it within the bankruptcy and sell it to, by doing claims and whatnot. The use of MERS always comes into play here. And what I do now know, under fact, because we've had MERS uh, in a case that I'm involved, where they specifically admitted uh, in discovery that, one, they don't have any agency or membership agreements with either the Structured Asset Securities Corp., which was the depositor in most of these trusts, or Lehman Brothers Holdings, Inc., which was either a depositor or sponsor in these trusts. So when you have these repurchase demands going back to those parties, and MERS admits no agency with those parties, and the other clear thing that MERS has admitted, of all things, MERS admits they cannot identify who the investor is, who the holder in due course is, of any of the debts and notes, and that's their business model. They can never identify, again, who is entitled to the debt as a holder in due course of the note. So if they have no agency with the, with the parties in the bankruptcy here, usually Sask and Lehman Brothers, and they can't identify the holder in due course, the only way they can come out of this stuff half the time is by issuing the assignments to the next party who secretly bought a claim and is going to try to uh, patch up their, their defective title and, and move to foreclose on people. It's such a, an, an, a colossal sham, Charles. Uh, complete agreement, Bill. I mean, I think you've used uh, today's episode well to expose further and in detail, uh, one of the many wrinkles to the uh, foreclosure fraud as it's still ongoing. And I appreciate that. And I am going to now get into a COVID-19 update. And uh, one of the fundamentals uh, that I've noticed, and so far it's just a theory, um, but time will tell. I have seen an increasing uh, use of video and sometimes audio only, but there's a move toward video conferencing. And this is true for anything from sometimes even mediations. Certainly court hearings are moving in that direction. Sometimes even court trials. Now, court trials are, as one might suspect, not particularly a, uh, a suitable venue, one would think, for not being held in person. Uh, so to do it virtually seems, frankly, like it would violate legal procedure. However, this is already happening in the unlawful detainer arena in California. And I'd love to hear uh, listeners could uh, contact Bill or Neil 
and even post on Neil's blog um, or contact Neil on his blog with any updates that they have in their part of the country, uh, whether they're borrowers, whether they're litigators, interested others. We'd like to hear from you on whether there's a shift to video conferencing or even just audio conferencing in your legal area. And the bottom line that I'm seeing is that there's actually happening right now in certain counties unlawful detainer trials by by video conferencing. And frankly, I think it's a patent violation of legal procedure. It's open to objection. And that's that's all going to play out in a, in a different uh way, of course, over time, and I'll be addressing that in the future. The other thing I wanted to touch on briefly in terms of the COVID-19 updates, the moratorium, particularly for foreclosures and evictions in California, it's very complex. I'm going to have to devote more of a segment to that in a future show. I will say that for auctions, I think auctions like trials, particularly jury trials, Making those COVID compliant is very difficult, and it's open and subject to challenge. So that's a topic for another show, another day. But I'm seeing continual postponement of sales, particularly here in California. And I think one of the reasons is that it's very difficult to make these auctions COVID compliant. That's all for now. Thank you, Bill. And Neil will be back next week. Thanks again, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.